Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, online courses, and grief projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Just $3 per month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm speaking with author Jan Warner about the loss of her husband, Artie, and her book, Grief Day by Day. We'll dive into why despair and suicidal thoughts are a normal part of grief, changing how we measure effort and progress after someone we love dies, and why, is this normal, may not be the right question to ask in the aftermath of loss. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Hi there, Grief Growers, and thank you for joining me for Season 9 of Coming Back. I am sending so much love to you in the midst of quarantine. This is a strange time to be alive right now, let alone alive and grieving. So know that now more than ever, my heart is reaching across these airwaves towards yours. I'll let you know now that about half of the interviews included in Season 9 were recorded pre-COVID-19, so in some of the following episodes, there will be no mention of coronavirus or coping with grief in the midst of a global pandemic, but some interviews will contain mention of the times that we're living in right now. Stay tuned, especially next week, for a very special Mother's Day interview that I'm doing with Cheryl Strayed, all about mother loss and what it's like to honor Mother's Day at a time when isolation and anxiety is especially loud. I chose this interview with Jan Warner as the first for season nine because we've dived deeply into what it means to be in a place of despair and loss. In a society that wants us to pretty up what it means to be heartbroken, I think it's really, really important that we have these conversations on feeling hopeless and helpless because they're real things that happen. I hope our interview resonates with you, and as always, my beautiful grief growers, you can reach me personally to share your grief story, find help and support, and connect to others who are grieving by emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. Yes, it is very, very true, now more than ever, that we live in a world where anything can happen. But we also live in a world where anything can happen. Sending you so, so much love. When Jan Warner's husband died, she thought she would sadly miss him. Instead, she was absolutely devastated. After the first chaotic year, she began to rebuild her life by honoring him. She became available to grieving people the way he, as a recovering alcoholic, was available to alcoholics and addicts. Five years ago, she started a Facebook page called Grief Speaks Out. 
It's a loving, supportive international community of 2.4 million grieving people. Jan Warner's book, Grief Day by Day, Simple Practices and Daily Guidance for Living with Loss, has been called a soothing balm for a wound and an outstretched hand in friendship. She has a master's in counseling degree and has studied NLP and hypnotherapy. In becoming fully alive with grief, she has produced documentary films and an off-Broadway play. Jan is a vagabond who has been to all seven continents, but her favorite role in life is being a grandmother. Jan, thank you so much for joining us here on Coming Back. I'm really delighted to talk about your book, Grief Day by Day, because reading it, even flipping through it for the first time, I had this light bulb go off in my head of, oh, thank goodness somebody broke it down into tiny pieces. (laughs) I was just so excited to see somebody do grief in a format that felt more like a devotional or something that, that a grieving brain could handle. And it's not that grieving brains can't take a lot of content. It's that they can't take a lot of information in the aftermath of loss. And so I was just so grateful to see that grief day by day is so, um, it's like little tiny chunks of help just when you need it. So if you could, I'd love to hear more about the inspiration behind grief day by day and maybe what prompted you to, to make it so minute and powerful at the same time. We'll start there. We're going to go in a lot of directions today. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you. That. That's very nice. And I'll be completely honest, the publisher gave the outline. And (laughs) that was quite my idea. (laughs) I got an email that said, we may be interested in your writing a book. And I just looked at it for 10 minutes. And then I went, okay, you can do this. They're handing this to you on a plate. So I called and I was interviewed and they talked to me. And then the outline was simple, simply to find 365 quotes, which sometimes is not that easy, and to break it down week by week. So each week has a different topic. Each topic has seven quotes and an exercise, which I decided to call Grief Whisperer Exercises. And then what I found was that I really liked the format because... For example, if you're feeling that you need to read something about hope, you could in the section that's called hope and you see quotes from seven different people. So you're getting the wisdom of not just me. I was about to say, assuming I do have some wisdom, but then people are going to say, yes, you do. So, okay, yes, I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, You get to see what I have to say about it. And then you have an exercise to do having to do with hope. If you're feeling despair, or if you're feeling suicidal, if you're feeling joy, there's 52 different topics. So I tried to cover everything. And the one thing that I fought with the editor about was like the one called despair. She said, could you make that a little bit more cheerful? And I said, no, because if you're feeling despair, or you're feeling totally that you're in a fog, that's not where the cheerful parts are. There's sections called what I call resting places like beauty and hope and music. And that's where you find the cheerful stuff. Because something that's really important to me is to acknowledge the pain and how unbearable it is. And not to try and make it sound pretty, but also to give you lots of different roadmaps from letting light into the darkness. 
I love this. And I literally just wrote down as you were speaking, thank you for fighting on behalf of despair, because I think there's a pressure. I mean, it sounds like from your editor, but from the rest of the world too, to like pretty up grief or make it attractive or, um, uh, just like fluff it up. And it bothers me because there are these really dark pockets or seasons sometimes where it's like, I just need to be in darkness. And even in your book, um, the first sentence of that chapter is despair is one of grief's most potent weapons. And it's very, very true. So just thank you for fighting on behalf of an experience that's so true for so many of us who are grieving. You're welcome. The one I, I, I fought hardest on was to call it suicide she wanted me to call it contemplating the end. And I said, people aren't contemplating the end. They're looking up where to buy a gun and bullets or pills on the internet. So if one person looks at the book and doesn't find a section on suicide and something, that's our responsibility. So you need to call it what it is. And then I got an email from a dear friend whose husband had taken his life. And she said, I opened your book. And the first thing I looked for was something called suicide. So that's, and on my Facebook page too, that's the whole thing. And in my life, <laughs> because, you know, my husband's still dead. He hasn't come back yet. Um, so it's always that going back and forth. And here's the part really dark that really that's really hurts okay how can I shift how can I learn over because it's been 10 years for me how can I learn to shift back into the part that's that's joyous and good and happy and how can I create more happy and productive moments and not to stay stuck in that and it's seductive I mean there's part of me that it's like it's cold outside why would I ever want to get out of bed but there's actually lots of reasons to do that so and I love to, I don't know if this was intentional, that the chapter that immediately that follows despair is hope. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be honest, I don't know if that was intentional because I work intuitively. So uh, I kind of have a, a feeling, people often say that I articulate what they're thinking, but they can't, don't have words for. And sometimes it's it's carefully thought out in the editing. But in terms of, just you know what do I do now it's I, I work more on my intuition and, and, a, and a feeling so but that's really good so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that <laughs> I literally have the book open in front of me right now and I was like what is the next chapter that comes after this because I've read the book but then immediately I wanted to see the order of things again and I was like oh isn't that funny and fitting that the and chapter is, that follows despair is hope it is intentional every five chapters are what I call resting places. So that part was intentional that there are four complicated things and then there's a place where you can breathe. So it's that you don't have to read in order at all. You can just dip in wherever you feel like it. But for people that are starting on page one and going to the end, it's if, if they're getting, if they're starting to feel like it's just too much, then there's a, there's a purposeful resting place of something else. Yeah. It's not like it's all top loaded with the hard stuff and ends with the fluffy, which I feel right. like is a lot of how cinema and like movies and things work. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very, again, intuitive structure for a book. And I have to ask, is this, is grief day by day intended for the first year of a loss or is it just for anybody who's experienced a loss and you can work through it in a year? Um, anytime, because 
and this is my belief, I, I have known people that have asked to be released from grief and feel like they have. And somebody, it's not published yet, so I'm not sure what the title is going to be, asked me to write a foreword for their book that's about healing. I feel like grief goes on forever. It seems to be hitting me harder this year, and I think it's because of the 10th anniversary of my husband's death. So it's a myth that you stop grieving for somebody that you love because the truth is you wake up every morning and they're still not there. So it's a book that can be picked up by anybody that's feeling they need some support in their grief. And some people will say that the second year is harder than the first. Other people will say the second year is easier. So everybody's on a, a different path. So whether you feel like the book will be helpful for you, it depends on where you are in your own path. And I mean, I help, I found it helpful now and I'm, um, just celebrated, celebrated, honored. I'm not really sure what word to use still for that. Um, the six year anniversary of my mom's death. And so even mm. now this far out, um, it was helpful to me partially because a lot of these people speaking on grief, the quotes that you pulled, I'm like, I haven't heard of their work yet. And I feel pretty having the podcast and doing the work that I do. I feel pretty immersed in this. And yet many of the voices of wisdom were strangers to me. I'm like, Oh, I got to chase that. I got to look, look them up, look up their work. And so it sent me down a bunch of other rabbit holes, which I really enjoyed going down because that's how my brain works. Um, mm -hmm. I want to shift gears and talk about, honoring this 10 year anniversary of your husband's death. So I'm wondering if you can speak more about him, maybe share how the two of you met a little bit of your time together. And then the law story that ultimately led you to writing grief day by day and doing the work that you do. I know that's a very big question. So feel free to take us on a journey with this one. Okay. First, before I do that, I want, I want to honor your feelings for your mom, because I'm sure that you miss her lots of times that there are things All the that <laughs> you want. Yeah. That you just, you know, it's, it's Tuesday and it's three o'clock and you want to call her and you can't anymore. So I, I want to honor what you said about your mom. Um, and that you, the looking for the word honor, celebrate, grieve. It's like you can fill in lots of different words in that space. And to me, that's part of the shifting. So my, I'm laughing because my husband was a character. There are a lot of people that feel like they know him really well and they never met him. Um, I owned a bookstore years ago in Phoenix, Arizona called The Turning Page. And he walked in and he had a little girl with him. He asked me for a copy of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I didn't have it. And so I called and I found another bookstore that had it and asked them to hold it for him. And he said that was really nice and asked me for my card. I was like, there was this like instant connection, which I was excited about. So I called people and um, I said, I met this guy today and then he didn't call. And those were the days I'm told that phones were actually connected to the wall. And while he was in the store, he had called and said, I left my bathing suit at your house. Can I come and get it back? So a month later, the phone rang and I recognized his voice. And I told him, I said, I, I recognize your voice. I know who you are. And he was suspicious. And I said, did you ever get your bathing suit back? <laughs> and he laughed and he knew. And then we started going <laughs> out. Yeah. So it's, I, this story could go on forever. And we just, he'd been married a lot. I'd never been married. 
I called him the poster boy for men that can't commit. We went together for 10 years and I used to say, let's get married and then we could stop having this conversation. And what he found was that he actually was very happily married to me. We were very connected. It's odd in a way, uh, my Facebook page, Grief Speaks Out has 2.4 million likes from all over the world. So we've become this international love story. And I think what makes it so powerful was it wasn't a perfect relationship. It wasn't a perfect marriage. We fought. I broke plates. He told me, <laughs> I'm just throwing in a couple of stories here, but he told me that he would never tell anybody that I did anything like break plates. And after he died, one of his friends, Roger, took me out to lunch. And he said, but what was with that breaking place thing? <laughs> he said, I knew he was telling somebody that. <laughs> Rat me out. Yeah, so that's that's the, when you love somebody when they're at their best, it's one thing. But when you love them when they're at their worst, when they're problematic and just not acting the way uh, you want them to, that seems really special. And I was very lucky to spend his dying time with him. He was killed by cancer. And one of the things he said to me one day, we used to hold hands. I, I called it a, a a dying party because the front door was unlocked from 10 in the morning till 10 at night because I couldn't handle scheduling people to come in. He had a hospital bed in, in the living room. And when nobody was there, we would hold hands and play jazz and talk. And he said, I'm sorry for all the ways in which I failed you. And I said, I am too. So there were all these really loving moments, like staying up all night, singing, taking tongues, taking uh, turns, singing songs. And I can't carry it. And so we just had these wonderful, we would, he would, we would dance and he would sing in my ear while we were dancing. So we had these wonderful loving moments. And then we had moments that, you know, we're fighting, but underneath it, with his tremendous love, he was older than I was. He lied about his age when I first met him. So I thought that when he, I thought about his death and I thought that when he died, I would feel sad and I would miss him. It never occurred to me. I would feel totally annihilated that I'd have no idea who I was. I described it as he held my kite string so I could soar. We were independent, but I didn't realize how completely dependent I was on him. And He's my husband. I, I, I recently read that Iman, who is David Bowie's wife, she's an incredibly beautiful model, said that when David Bowie died, people sa said, how are you feeling about your late husband? And she would say, what do you mean, late husband? He's my husband. So uh, the yeah. other part of the question was, so how did I, I, I write the book? So for the first six months, to be honest, I did think about Kelly. First, I thought he would come get me, and I literally went to sleep with my hand up in my air, my hand up in the air because I thought he'd come down and get me. And then I realized I lived in an apartment building, and he'd have to like go through all the apartments and go excuse me, I'm going to get my wife. <laughs> so I always had a sense of humor along with the darkness. And then I thought, well, if he's not going to come get me, then I'm supposed to go to him. And I really did think about it, but I couldn't give the grief to the people that love me, including my daughter, that just didn't seem like a good option. I'm not selfish enough to do that. And 
if anybody knows anybody who has taken their life, I'm not saying they're selfish. People have different reasons for doing that. I'm just using that word for myself. So the next thing was, how am I going to live? Because he was kind of a tough guy. He had a tough childhood, which would take a long time to explain. So he liked us calling each other our raison d'etre because it was French, which means reason for being. So how do you live if your reason for being is no longer alive? He was a recovering alcoholic that was available to other alcoholics and addicts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I thought I can make myself available to other grieving people. And that would be a way to honor him and it would give meaning to my life. So I wrote a blog post and I thought if you reach one person, that's enough. I had no idea that it would turn into this thing where I reach people all around the world and where I have a book that I, my last count was 20,000 copies, which my understanding is pretty good for a small niche book like myself. Um, so that's sort of an encapsulated version of the Artie and Jan story. He used to call me Panache. And I try and live up to that as how can I still be Panache, even though he's not around to, well, not around physically um, to call me that. Does that answer your question? It does. And I want to thank you so much for sharing just like this vulnerable space of I wanted to die because I think this is such I won't call it a universal experience because not everybody goes here, but I know that I also went here. And so to see this show up in grief day by day, as we talked about with the chapter on despair and with other books as well. um, I mean, I just got chills when you spoke of this visual of like, I would go to sleep with my hand in the air so he could come get me the sense of because they have died. I want to die also. And just, uh, we are a unit, a, a paired set. And so to be unmatched by death is is like truly devastating. And I just want to thank you for sharing that as well. And then I want to shift into, um, you mentioned uh, calling each other by French terms. Can you say that word again? Raison d'etre. Oh, yes. Yeah, reason for being. It reminded me of another grief book that I've read recently called Here If You Need Me by Kate Braystrup. And she talks about how all of her kids growing up have an objet du more. And I'm butchering this, but I think it's the object of your affection. (laughs) And she talked about, you know, how her how her toddler had, you know, had her because she was the youngest and the middle child had a stuffed rabbit and the oldest child had a blanket. But for her, she also lost her husband. Her husband was her objet du more. And, uh, and using these, these really sweet French terms to refer to somebody that you love, I just instantly made that mental glue connection of like, oh, everybody's speaking to each other in French. <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe that's what I'm missing from my relationships. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I we watched Anna Karenina, which some people will know is a, is a is a love story that ends in tragedy, but it's mm-hmm. Russian. And I, I made my husband uh, when he left the house, I made him click his heels three times together and bow like a Russian count would do. And it was very funny, and it was also very sweet that he agreed to do it. But I also I want to put the counterpart into suicide that. I have had magical things happen in the past 10 years that I would not want to have missed. So I made a good choice. It's, I, I, I couldn't see into my future. And that to me is always, because I, I, I've worked suicide prevention um, in my past. But the thing is, is that there are some people that 
are chronically depressed and have a much harder time than I do. But my model for depression is Winston Churchill and Carrie Fisher. There are people that manage to have depression and still create different things. Grief is not depression. It can cause depression, but it's not depression. But I do want to put in that I'm glad that I made that choice. Ten years later, I don't wish that I had. I have moments of going, you know, you know, stalking around the house going, why am I still here? But that's just like a grouchy <laughs> thing that I get over and go back into. Um, there's lots of reasons. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there are many fold. There are lots of reasons. Um, really quickly. I want to ask where you got this idea for having a dying party, because I loved this idea of having the doors open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and just leave it unlocked. Whoever comes in, comes in. I don't have the energy to schedule anything because it reminded me, and I've never shared this publicly on the podcast or anywhere. Um, my sister and I actually invented a system at our house because before my mom got sick and died with cancer, my dad actually had surgery for two brain aneurysms on either side of his head. And so our family was in and out of the hospital for a good four year stretch. And so people were coming in and out and bringing casseroles and having prayer circles and taking communion. Just like, it was just a bustly place to be. And my sister and I made this sign for the front door that said something along the lines of, you know, if the card is green, come on in. We'd love to see you. If the card is red, um, we're taking some time for ourselves today. And we had this little card that was double-sided and we'd flip it over if we were okay to receive guests and we'd flip it back if we were not, or if we were away from the house or kind of whatever it was. And it's so funny, just like the little systems or the rules that people invent about their homes being safe places or, you know, kind of have an open door policy or kind of how everybody structures that differently when somebody in the house is actively dying. Right. And that, 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 that's a great idea. I, I didn't think of that. Um, I just, so many people wanted to see him and it was so beautiful because he had gotten a lot of people, he wouldn't take responsibility for it, but a lot of people felt that they were sober because of him and he always felt less than and this parade of people coming in and saying how much they loved him and thanking him for helping them. He said to me, I think people really do love me. And I said, uh-huh. And he said, I think I really have just done some good with my life. And I went, uh-huh. So it was beautiful. I, he was actually supposed to go to a nursing home. I never actually heard that because he at some point had to have surgery. And I got the hospital bed to put in the living room. And then when we switched from visiting nurses to hospice nurses, I had what I called the battle of the bed because they wanted hospice wanted to put in their bed, which was the exact same bed as the visiting nurse's bed. And that meant he would have had to be like on the sofa for who knows how long. And I made all these phone calls and nobody had ever asked before. And it turned out I could rent the bed myself for something like a hundred dollars. And so it was just, it was a totally insane time, but, I decorated the living room with all the things from around the house that he liked. He only lived for about three weeks. So I don't know how I would have handled something that was extended. I would have liked him to be around longer than three weeks, but I'm not sure I would have dealt very well with something that lasted 14 or 15 years. Um, but it was just, yeah, I wanted him to be as happy 
as possible. And I did have, I always had uh, visiting nurses or hospice with me, so I didn't have to handle all the physical things myself. Um, and luckily he liked frozen food, so I could like still cook stuff in the microwave. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. It was, um, cause I, you know, people have stories where, you know, somebody walks out of the house and they die in whatever situation and they don't get that time to spend together. So, um, I feel very blessed that we had that time to, to say all the things that we wanted to say to each other. Yeah, that is something that I think so many people wish they had more of is time looking mm-hmm. back. And that's one of those things. It's like when it's gone, it's gone. It's like money we can find or create more of or steal more of um, energy. We can <laughs> sleep and wake up with more of it. Like there's a, there's so many things that feel like when they go away, they're gone, but they're actually renewable. But time is one of those things. It's like when it's gone, it's G O N E gone. And, um, and that just strikes me so well. And I love too, that you were like, no, I'm going to fight for this bed. Like this is a hill that I'll, I'll die on to make sure that this happens for his sake. Cause that seems a little ridiculous. Just hearing you tell that story. I'm like, I've never heard of that before. Well, it, it just, it never occurred to me. I mean, I, 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 there was a social worker that they, they, it was like, I got everything set up two days before he was supposed to come home. And they said, normally people don't do this. And I said, well, even if he doesn't come home, I, I can't have him come home and not have everything ready. So it was, I, I was like the general in charge of his dying. Um, and he appreciated that. And in retrospect, I appreciated it too. I'm a little, um, I don't know what word to tack on. And I kind of wish that it would be nice if he could do that for me as well. Cause I think that's part of, you know, it's like you're able to give somebody a really loving death. And then it's like, oh, here I am all by myself. That's why a lot of people, including me, don't like, well, he's in a better place. I'm really happy he's not in pain anymore. And I hope he's having a splendid time wherever he is. But that kind of doesn't really help me because I'm still here. That was actually kind of tilting into the next question that I want to ask you, which is what did his death teach you about what you want for your own when that day comes? Uh, (laughs) That's a hard one. Um, There's a, a, a person, Dr. Richard Bandler, and one of the things he says on um, he invented something called neurolinguistic programming, which is about retraining your brain like a computer. I call him a brain chiropractor. And he said, what did you say today that you wanted to say, but you were afraid of how somebody would react? So I had to learn how to do that. I, I kind of live by that. So a lot of the things that have happened to me are because I've taken an action that was maybe uncomfortable. At the very beginning, I had I, I saw a sign that a little plaque and it said "Have an adequate day," and it made me laugh because I thought I could do that. I can't have a good day, but I can have an adequate day. And I would give myself a chore for the day, and it might be something simple like writing a check or washing one dish. And I would I also made a rule that I couldn't stay inside more than one day in a row 
but going out could be five minutes. So it was to keep showing up and to keep helping people. That's the other thing. Because I still have friends on Facebook. If you can't get out of bed, you can go on Facebook and find people that are really openly struggling and you can write a supportive post to them, which takes me out of my own pain for a minute. And I think that's what I learned from my husband was to to take care of other people and to show up because those were two things that he did. And so over time, I still do that. You know, I make plans to do things. I, if you look at my life, you have, there's all these magical bits and all these wonderful things. Like I'm going to Lebanon in March, and I'm going to London actually. And I and I and I and I go out, out a lot. I've made a lot of friends, but it's one step at a time. And you could edit my life with all those exciting things, and you could also edit my life with me lying in bed, setting the alarm for nine and for ten and for eleven and for noon, and then finally getting up and saying, "Okay, I'm going to start." So his his death taught me that there were I could flourish on my own if I would just make one move. That's a, there's a section on movement, and it says, I want you to move. And it says something like, if you want to go out for a run or you want to go to the gym, that's fine. But if all you can do is just wiggle your little finger up and down, that's okay too. So it's to take a step, no matter how small the step is. And then either take the next one or go back to bed. Because I love a good wallow. Even after 10 years, it's... On my birthday, on his on his birthday, I don't stay inside anymore. I celebrate, but I often leave the next day for a quiet day so that I can spend time with the sadness too. That reminds me of one of the very first episodes of Coming Back we did um, from with Tracy Stokel, and she had just gotten a really traumatic and unwanted divorce and so she she said i had days of epic wallowing and she would literally have somebody else take her kids for the day and um and she mm -hmm. would just sit around in her pajama pants all day watch trash tv eat ice cream order wings whatever's going on um but uh but she's like i just needed these days of epic wallowing where like no one was going to judge me i wasn't accountable to anyone or anything and i knew somebody else was taking care of of my kids and the other things that needed to get done and i think that's really valuable i don't know that i'm a wallower necessarily but i am a sleeper like if everything's overwhelming i'm like i'm just going to go to bed and actually sleep sleep i just like conk out for more hours than my body mm -hmm. probably needs to sleep but i am anyway um and so i love this notion of if if you're going to move, move your pinky finger and either take this next step or go back to bed because like those are your options. And it also has this message of the things that you used to measure value by are no longer valid because grief has happened. So people who are judging themselves of like, I can only move my pinky finger. I used to be able to run around the block is like, oh, this, the scales are no longer valid. Every, all the measurements have been changed to kilometers or miles based on whatever country you're from. I'm like, we're changing our metrics here about what's valid and what's worth something in the aftermath of loss, because holy crap, just to even sit up is hard some days. Well, I think that's why it's why people, it just really bothers me 
that so many people experience friends disappearing when they need them the most, it's hard for other people to understand that we've changed, that we're not the same person that we were before we experienced the death. And is people often say, I do X, Y, and Z, is that normal? And I often laugh because it might be a day when I'm in my pajamas at noon eating ice cream. I'm asking me if it's normal. Um, You're like, well. <laughs> but my answer. Based on my circumstances. How did I become that person? <laughs> but my answer for myself is what I tell people. I don't ask if it's normal. As long as somebody's not hurting themselves or somebody else. You know, if somebody said I'm thinking about killing myself or killing somebody else. Okay. Like, stop. Let's back unpack that but what I ask myself is does this serve the kind of life I want to live so when it with the new I don't usually make new year's resolutions but I'd like to read more I used to like it's also a normal thing or a common thing for something that you love to do when the person you love was alive you don't want to do anymore my husband and I always sat and read and shared or read to each other so I'd like to read more but if I read a page a week that's okay because it's hard to change sometimes so you kind of like for me i play with what i can change but it's not is it normal to sleep too much it's is it serving the kind of life that i want to live and the answer could be yeah it is or it could be no i'll see if i can work on this a little bit you're absolutely right because a lot of us are trying to figure out where we fall on the bell curve of life and i'm like don't worry about that just figure out okay, where would you like to be? And how can we get there? Is this serving the kind of life that you want to create for yourself as opposed to where is the majority and where am I within the majority? It's a lot harder and it feels a lot less human. I also tell people to look into the eyes of the person that they loved that died, the remembered eyes. And what do you think that that person would say to you? Because we often look at ourselves with critical eyes and you have to look at yourself with the eyes of somebody, either the person that died or somebody in your life that loves you or somebody, I mean, you could, you could make it a celebrity if you wanted to, you could make it anybody, but look at yourself with eyes outside because I know that a lot of things that I would say critically about myself if you ask somebody that knew me, they wouldn't say that at all. So, perspectacles. So I wish I could remember the name of the writer that used oh, that word that we all need. Perspectacles. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> and I apologize to the woman that um, invented that because I can't remember her name. At the I moment. have never heard that word before, and that just made me smile so big. That's wonderful. Uh, well, Jan, as we're kind of coming to the end here, where can people find out more about you and, and your work and grief day by day, as well as just anything else that you'd like to share with people? The, the full title of the book is Grief Day by Day, Simple Practices and Daily Guidance for Living with Loss by Jan Warner. And it's around so much now that if you Google it, you can you can definitely find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. A lot of libraries have it. It's also at Target if you like to go shop at Target. <laughs> exactly. So you, if you Google it, it's always wonderful if you ask somebody to order it. And somebody called her local library. If you want, I call them grief day by day angels. She called her local library and said she would like to buy them a copy. And the librarian 
looked up the book and said it had such good reviews that she would buy five copies herself. So I think it's wonder. I, I, I'm really grateful. I often give away copies because I find that when I give somebody a copy, they buy three or four copies for other people. So I have this sort of grassroots thing. And then on Facebook, the the publisher would not make, you know, I have this brand, Grief Speaks Out. Would the publisher use that as a title? No. So my Facebook page is called Grief Speaks Out, and that's at facebook.com slash Grief Speaks Out. And I do seven posts a day. So there's a lot of content, and it's different content. And there's people from all over the world. So I love it because what it means is that in every culture, there's so much love and so much pain. And by sharing all of that, we seem to make each other feel better. So it's become a very special place for me as well. Yeah, it's a tremendous, literally by the numbers, it's a tremendous reminder that we are not alone. Not at all. And that, that it's, it, it, it seems to be a flaw in almost every culture that after a certain point, unless you're very lucky, which I am, because I mean, I talk about my husband. So if you don't want me to talk about him, you're not going to stay my friend. But a lot of people choose to be silent because they get tired of people telling them they should be over it. Mm-hmm. So I feel very grateful that um, I, f- I find I'm talking about him a lot more now because it's his 10th anniversary and people say, no, 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 keep telling the story. So, yes, I'm just nodding my head in agreement. I think that's a good thing. Um, say their names, you know, we, that's what we want. We want our loved ones to be remembered. So say their the phrase names. that just came to me is the Artie and Jan show. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, it is really. I mean, that's that's it. I I took my wedding rings off and on so many times, and now I wear them on my right hand. It's like, hey, I waited a long time to get those. You know, (laughs) I don't have to take them off. Somebody else wears them around their neck. Somebody else, it's it's a you know a child or a father with you a mother, a father and a mother. You know, so it it, or it's just. The only thing I wish is that there would just be like one day a month when it, where nobody died, but that's just not going to happen. So it, it can be overwhelming sometimes. So to, to find those, I, I met a wonderful woman. Her name is Lords Lane, and she says that she chooses joy, and she has a center in her heart of joy. So when she's sad or angry or overwhelmed or whatever, she remembers to come back to the joy. I don't have that, but I like, I like that. So I'm working on thinking if I, cause my center is like wobbly. It's, it's not there. So the idea that I could have a center in myself that's based on joy is, is something for me to work for. Yeah. It's like the next thing that, that you're looking towards in your life. I think that's just a beautiful place to, to wrap up. So Jan, thank you so much for talking to us about grief day by day and uh, grief speaks out as well. And for just coming on, coming back to share your story. It's been so fun. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for allowing me to be on your show. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Jan Warner for joining me today to show up on behalf of despair, talk about what's normal in grief, and discuss her book Grief Day by Day. Jan came back by writing and connecting with other grieving people. 
You can find Jan's book Grief Day by Day on Amazon, your local library, or the independent bookstore of your choice, especially right now in the midst of coronavirus. And be sure to join her Facebook community called Grief Speaks Out. You can find a link to both of these resources in the show notes. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening very soon on Monday, May 18th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Thank you super ultra big time to Bernadine, Julia P., Emily, Kate, Chris, Julia L., and Pamela for pledging to support coming back during this uncertain time in the world. I am so immensely grateful for you. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me, shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. <laughs>